Tanner. First Peter chapter 2, we're just going to keep walking through uh, this book. I, um, the, the more I preach through uh, different parts of the Bible, the different sections of Scripture, the more I study the Bible, one of the things that's kind of becoming clear is the Bible talks a whole lot about suffering. Uh, the Bible talks a whole lot about why bad things happen to good people, although my favorite uh, line when somebody says, a lot of bad things happen to good people, uh, there's a theologian who said, well, it only happened once. Um, but the Bible talks a lot about suffering, and First Peter is no exception. Uh, we've been in this book for several months now. Um, it was written to these elect exiles that are dispersed across what's now modern-day Turkey. It was Asia Minor then, um, kind of in the uh, between uh, Rome and, and uh, Italy and, and, and the Holy Land or, or Jerusalem, if you will. It's kind of right in between there at the top of the, the sea. So it's not written to any one church, but it's written to several different churches. It's written to these believers who are being persecuted, not by the government yet, although that will come into play with, with Nero being the emperor. And so it's Peter... And, and, and church history tells us that Peter suffered when he died. Church history tells us that, and it's not in the Bible, so there's, it's not 100% true, um, but, but church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, and he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel fit to die like his Savior. And that came right after they had killed Peter's wife. I say all of that because what Peter's going to say here in this passage and then for really the rest of the second half of, of this little book just seems like Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. The way he's going to talk about suffering, the way he's going to talk about how we are supposed to live in the world is going to make it feel like Peter has no idea what he's talking about and that maybe his audience doesn't understand it either. He's going to tell us to submit to human authorities like our governments, even if the governments are corrupt. Remember, this government is under Nero, who was lighting Christians on fire for tea parties, and he's saying you submit to that government. He's going to tell slaves to submit to their masters. To, to win your masters over to the gospel is what he's going to tell these slaves. Children, the same way. Wives, the same way. He's going to say some things that are really hard. So I really just want to look at, at two verses this morning as we kind of transition out of this, this theological foundation where Peter then literally goes, and that foundation is Jesus, to, okay, so now this is where the rubber meets the road. This is how we do this gospel living um, in real life. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to cover verse uh, 11 and verse 12. So let's read them and pray. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray. Father, there's so many passages that we can preach on Christmas Day. There's so much of your word and of your scripture that talks about your incarnation, of you coming in the flesh to us. It's interesting that you've brought us to this passage. 
God, your birth reminds us that you were born to die. Christmas leads to Easter. And Easter reminds us that you're not a God who is distant and doesn't understand suffering. That you're a God who completely understands suffering. And that you call us to live our lives in a way that glorify your gospel in the midst of things that are difficult and things that are hard. I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And help us to glory in you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let's reread verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Now remember, Peter calls them friends here, but these are these scattered Christians that he's writing this letter to in Turkey that are going to be persecuted. They are experiencing some persecution now, but it's going to ramp up. It's going to be more. And so Peter's telling them, I urge you while you're strangers in your exiles, meaning you don't belong to this world. Of course they're going to persecute you. Of course they're going to rub against you. You don't fit in here. So while you're living as strangers and while you're living as exiles, it doesn't give you an excuse to sin and live unholy. In fact, he says, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Of all of the people, I would think that these people would be the ones who don't need that message. If you're willing to die for your faith, then most likely I would think you wouldn't need to be told by Peter... Don't follow your sinful desires. Yet Peter didn't see it that way. He's telling these people to to abstain from these sinful desires. So what are these sinful desires? Well, he doesn't mention an exact list. And at the first part of of chapter 2, he gives us this list of these sins that he tells us to abstain from. He says in in, in 1 Peter 2, 1, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So those are all sins that Peter was telling these churches that that corrupt your community, that corrupt your fellowship within these local churches, to abstain from from those things. In in 1 Peter chapter 4, he lists some more sins. And he says, In order to to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So, so those could be some of the ideas that, that Peter has. And it's not just within the church, but it's that those outside of this church are doing things that, that the church, that Christians should never do. Paul has a famous passage. Uh, Paul has several famous things he wrote in the Bible. But in Galatians chapter 5, there's this long list of these works of the flesh. This is Galatians 5, chapter 19. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, cruising, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we can take all of these things and we can say with this gospel living, right, the basics of gospel living in our life at the very foremost means that there's things that we don't do if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are things that we abstain from. Things that hurt brothers and sisters in Jesus. 
sins in whatever form and fashion they are. Now, we're not perfect at this. We're growing in the Lord in this, but we are to abstain from these things because they wage war against your soul. Ephesians is where the armor of God is. Have you ever looked at the armor of God? I love the armor of God because it's given for one real purpose. We have all of these things, right? The helmet of, of the word, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet of, of peace, the sword, which is the word of God. All of these things that are this armor that we're meant to wear every single day as Christians. But do you know what Paul tells us in Ephesians that the armor is for? Standing firm on the gospel. Sometimes when we think about waging wars in Scripture, what we think is we need to get our Bibles, we need to make them hardbacks, and let's just start beating people out in the streets until they repent and turn to Jesus or they run faster than we can chase them. And what the Bible is telling us is that war that we rage is against our sin first and foremost. It's our hearts that need the light of the gospel. It's our souls that need to have this war against sin raged against them. It's our souls that need to abstain from these things. If we claim the gospel is enough, then our lives should exemplify this simply by certain things we don't do. Verse 12, we're just going to do the first part. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That, that passage in, Ephesians, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, right after that, in, in, in Galatians 5, starting in verse 22, so Paul lists out all these works of the flesh, and then do you know what comes after that? Fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now here's what's interesting in this passage to me. It's works of the flesh, plural, works. But it's fruit of the Spirit, singular. So what Paul's telling us here is that you don't grow in one fruit and not in another fruit. They're not different fruits. It's one fruit of the Spirit. And so if we're believers in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us and the gospel is something that we're living out, then our lives look more loving and they look more joyful and they look more peaceful and they look more patient and they look more kind and they look more good and they look more faithful and there's more gentle and there's more self-control all at once Because it's the Spirit working in us. And we may struggle with some of those. It's Christmas. Patience is thin. But it's singular. While as what Paul says right before is plural with the works of the flesh, meaning that those sins are multiple. And I think it's interesting that that Peter is telling these people, again, who are going to be persecuted and are being persecuted a little bit, that when you're being persecuted, when these people come at you, you need to live your life in a way that is reclused away from them so they can't find you. That's not what he says. In a way that does an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If they're mean for you, then you be mean right back and you let them know what Jesus says. That's not what he says either. What he says is you conduct yourself in a way that's honorable among the Gentiles. So there's things that we don't do 
and there's things that we do. And all of that comes in in what's the second half of verse 12, which is really what Peter's going to flesh out for the rest of this book, uh, which is this. So then, when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Why does God allow bad things to happen to you? This passage tells us the reason. It tells us one of many of the reasons. Sometimes the world, sometimes Gentiles, people who are evildoers, will slander you. They will say things that are wrong. They will say things that are mean. They will say things that are lies. They will say things that are not true. And maybe you'll just feel those things as just a human being. And what Peter tells us to do is to lean into the gospel. The basics of gospel living is that you and I live in a fishbowl. And that the world is watching whether they want to or not. One of the main reasons people won't come to churches is because they say it's filled with hypocrites. Well, how do they know that we're hypocrites unless they watch our lives? And then they know. It's this glass bowl that they peer into. And so what Peter's telling us to do here, what Peter's telling these Christians who are being persecuted to do here is that when, not if, when they slander you as evildoers, which should be a lie, right? You should not be doing evil and then they slander. It's not slander if you are doing evil. It's only slander if you're not doing evil. So when they slander you as evildoers, when they lie about you, let them observe how you respond to that. It should be Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how Christ responded. Jesus was slandered, Jesus was lied about, and Jesus was crucified. And how did he respond to those who crucified him? He died anyways. I still laugh. Peter cut a guy's ears off when they were going to arrest him, and Jesus put the ear back on, and then that guy put him in handcuffs and marched him into the trial. A Roman guard became a believer at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because of how Jesus handled all of these things. If we're believers in Jesus, and we genuinely and truly hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our lives ought to be and will be observed by a watching world. What will they see? Will they see us pretending? Will they see our social media posts that have our out-of-context Bible verses with our cute little coffee mugs when they're more creamer than it is coffee and it's just a travesty? And then they see us in Walmart living a different life. Bumping old ladies with our carts and trying to get to the front of the line. Well, they hear us say that we love Jesus with all of our heart, with everything that we have. They'll see our our little Jesus bumper sticker on the back of the car as they cut us off. Or as they show somebody else in traffic who's number one. Would they define our lives as loving lives? Would they define us as a people who are peaceful, 
But whenever whatever circumstance comes across in the world, and there will be plenty of them that will come, that will shake our foundation, and that will move everything that we believe on, will they look at our lives and what will they see? Will they see panic or will they see peace? This is why we live in a glass bowl. Because God has made it this way so that when our lives are uprooted, a watching world can turn and can look at our lives. And if they see that we hold to something that they can't even fathom holding to do, that we don't do these things that are debaucherous and leave life terrible, that we do these things that are hard, that are loving, that we're growing in those things. And that when earth shakes and they see that we're not just frazzled and upset... What they see is that we have a foundation and we have something that they desperately need and that they cannot have without Jesus. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. John Wesley, when he was on his mission trip, I think it was John or Charles, one of the Wesley brothers, when they were on their way over to America from uh, Europe for a mission trip, they were on a boat and it got captured in a storm. These are evangelists coming to share the gospel with America. And, and, and whichever Wesley brother was, I think it was John, just starts panicking, freaking out. I mean, he's on a, think of an airplane in turbulence. What are you doing if an airplane gets in turbulence? It starts rocking, it's upside down, it's back forward. What are you doing and how are you feeling? John was freaking out and he looked over and there's this group of Christians who are gathered together and they're praying and they're at peace. Even their kids are at peace. And it struck him. He's an evangelist. He's going to share the gospel with us pagan Americans. And this was, you know, 150 years ago. It was that moment that stayed in the back of his mind for years because his mission trip here failed incredibly. It was terrible. It didn't work out for him. He goes back. He finds the same group of people, the same denomination. He goes into their church, and he hears the gospel proclaimed. What they were doing was they were reading one of Charles Spurgeon's commentaries for the sermon. If you think it's, my sermons are boring, I'll show you some, like, we can read some technical commentaries, and it is, woo. And in that moment, he was converted. What the Lord did in his heart was he was able to look at this glass bowl lives of these Christians on this boat with him. He's the evangelist. They're just normal people. He sees how they're living in the midst of a literal storm, and it drew him to the gospel in a way that he'd never been drawn to before. It's the glass bowl effect. You don't have to, like, look at me. Look at how I live this life. The world is watching you life. And maybe one day those who observe your good works, not evil works, you do good things, not, not, you should abstain from bad. And they will glorify God on the day when he visits. Now there's some debate on what that means. We understand glorify God. Only believers are going to glorify God. So there's this salvation moment that happens with these people when they see our lives. We can't save them, but if they see that we're anchored to something that doesn't shake, then we can point them to Jesus as the anchor and the foundation too. On the day when he visits could be two things. It could be talking about the day when they're saved and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of them and visits, or it could be talking about the second coming of Jesus. Either way. We want to glorify God on both days. We want our lives to say more about Jesus than anything else does. There are things we don't do. There are things we do do and understand that we live in a glass bowl and a world is watching. 
And so it's great that we're here on Christmas Day, unlike some of those pagan churches. Amen. And it's great that we gather together, and it's great that we do all of these things. But understand, our gathering is very important for us to do. And what is equally important in the gospel is that God doesn't have us live here together. Amen? We don't have beds. The pews don't fold back into futons. And this isn't where we all stay. This isn't a commune. Like, we're not doing that. The way God has it for us is we gather together and then we scatter. And we spend our week not typically around each other all of the time. Instead, we're around all sorts of different people. Think, there's not many of us. But you come into contact with at least 50 people a week. So if you multiply our number by 50, we have a massive gospel impact in Scurry County. The God is calling us to go scatter, to go share the gospel, to go live lives that are going to be watched and that exemplify the good news of Jesus Christ, which says that this little baby born in the major is worth worshiping. That this little baby born in the major while he's being taken care of by his mother, is absolutely 100% God. That this little baby, born in the major, who's having his diaper changed at the exact same time as holding the universe in place because he's God. And not one moment is that little baby in the manger not God. Not one moment is he not human. He's 100% God and he's 100% man, and he's worth our worship no matter what season it is in life. And so we gather together on Christmas, but next Sunday is New Year's Day, and it's equally worth gathering together on New Year's Day. And it's equally gathering together in the middle of January, in the middle of February, in the middle of March, throughout the season. We gather together to encourage one another, to grow one another, to help one another. Lord willing, when we scatter and we live lives as this glass bowl and we share the gospel, that God might use our lives to save some people that we can then bring next week to the gathering and rejoice over. God willing, we might fill up the baptistry and need the bath bombs in it. It's simply a matter of are we living a life that exemplifies Jesus and doing God's will. That's what God's will is, that we would glorify Jesus. Or are we just coasting? We do most of the things we're supposed to do. We don't do most of the things we're not supposed to do. And we just kind of live this good old boy Christianity that exists around us. The Bible calls us for so much more, and in your heart you know that there's so much more. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that he died in my place, and that takes precedence over everything that we do in our life. That is the basics of gospel living. So here's how we do this. Understand, there are things that we don't do, and we will do them. And so what we would do if we're believers in Jesus Christ is we repent quickly, we apologize to who we need to apologize to, and we don't hide it. We don't, sin thrives in darkness. It doesn't thrive when you bring it to light. There are things that we should do that we won't do. 
And if we're believers in the gospel, we humble ourselves like Jesus humbled himself into the form of a baby, and we repent of those things, we apologize where we need to apologize, and we don't hide it. We bring it into light. This is where I failed, and so this is how I'm going to do these things. And we understand that our lives are being lived in a glass bowl, and what people don't need to see is how our 2.5 kids obey every single thing that we say, how our one and a half dogs mind, and we can teach them all of these tricks, how our house is decorated with everything that it's supposed to be decorated with, our Christmas tree is flocked with the fake snow on it, not the real snow, of course. Everything on our cabinets is clean and pure. If you wipe your hand on our baseboard, it's clean. That's not what the world needs to see from us. What they need to see are people who are trying to not do things that struggle and trying to do the right things and struggle and that lean into Jesus more and more every day. Your kids, your family doesn't need you to be their savior. They need you to point them to the one who can save. And so if we're believers in Jesus Christ, if we're gospel-centered Christians, our life isn't about being perfect. It's about leaning into the one who is. It's about this baby. Born to two rural teenagers. <laughs> There's a song we listen to called Labor of Pain. In the first line, it was not a silent night. I've been in the delivery room three times. It is not silent there's no doctors there it's not it's a king born in the dirt more animals watching his birth than humans the first people to visit jesus are these nasty dirty shepherds can you imagine the first like that's like saying the first people to visit if jesus was born today would be these dirty oil filled guys just covered in nasty stuff farmers with all of their dirt on top of them and chemicals that keith has sprayed on them just walking in to go visit this baby It's not nobility. It's not royalty. And we had canon. We had to wear a mask. And we could only have two people in the room until canon was born. Then we could have four. And it was doctors. And it was nurses. And he's hooked up to all these two. None of that happened for Christ. And if he's God, which he is, then he could have been born at any point in history that he wanted to. He could have been born in a hospital. But in his infinite and all-powerful and all-knowing wisdom, he decided to be born then for a purpose and for a reason. We worship a baby who was born in the dirt. And if we're honest, we can look at his life from a material aspect and say he didn't own a thing. In fact, when he dies, they take his cloak and they auction it off. And he's buried not in a tomb that he owns, not in his family burial ground, not with a headstone next to his family. It's in a borrowed tomb. That's who we worship. Because God humbled himself in that way. And if we're believers in Jesus Christ and we cling to the gospel, that's the kind of humility we can live with too. And if we live with that kind of humility, our glass bowl lives that the world is watching, it will make no sense to them. Did you know that up until scripture started using the word humble, it was never seen as a good thing? In Roman culture, you were not supposed to be humble. You were supposed to be prideful. That's what you needed to be. Yet when we look at Scripture, it's taking these ideas of the world and just flipping them on their head. Saying, no, 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 that's not how you win people to Christ. We win people to Christ by genuine, true, authentic lives centered and rooted on Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. Nothing more nothing less.
praise God for a gospel that is good news, not good steps to do, not good laws to keep, not good things to obey, but good news to be proclaimed. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, I thank you that we do get to gather this morning, that we get to sing songs, that we get to hear about Christmas mornings. God, what a blessing that this is, that we get to hear how our brothers and sisters in Christ with their families celebrate your birth this morning. And then we get to gather together, and though it can be a pain leaving all of those things, it reminds us, God, that our lives are really, really pretty easy. That our struggles, God, could be far worse. That our sufferings could be much harder. God, I thank you for Christmas. We thank you that you came as a human being, 100% God, 100% man in a way that we would never understand and we could never comprehend because it's your sacrifice and it's your death that's worthy. God, you make yourself mortal so that you can pay for our sin. Help us to grow in this gospel living every day. God, help us to repent and change our hearts so that the things we're not supposed to do, we flee from and we disgust in. And the things that we're supposed to do are easier for us to do tomorrow, today even. And then when people look at our lives, they don't see these perfect people who have everything together. What they see are people who are desperately depending on you. Nothing more and nothing less. Help us to make much of Jesus.